Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that the following interview is brought to you with permission by the excellent podcast, Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope that you visit Who Makes Sense? Since 2008, we've been hearing a lot about John Maynard Keynes, the British economist who, during the 1930s and 1940s, helped to reshape how governments approached economic policy. In the United States, Keynes convinced federal policymakers, President Franklin Roosevelt among them, that the government needed to take a more proactive approach to federal spending if the country wanted any hope of getting out of the Great Depression. Many historians credit Keynesian policies with fixing the economic crisis of the Depression and paving the way for American prosperity after World War II. Although scholars are divided on how Keynesian FDR was and the lasting impact of the policies he pursued. Since the financial crisis began, some observers have suggested that we need to return to Keynesian policies, which fell out of favor in the 1970s, to get us out of our current economic predicament. Our guest today, Eric Rauschway, turns his focus to another aspect of FDR's relationship with Keynes, his staunch support of Keynesian monetary policy, which Rauchway says ended the Depression, defeated fascism, and secured a prosperous peace. Monetary policy is the federal government's approach to managing the amount of money in circulation, and it doesn't get as much attention as other policies FDR pursued to fix the Depression. Today, we talk with Eric Rauchway about monetary policy, the gold standard, and the morality of prosperity. You are listening to Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism podcast. Betsy Beasley. And I'm David Stein. Who Makes Sense is a monthly podcast devoted to bringing you engaging stories that explain how capitalism has changed over time. We interview historians and social and cultural critics about capitalism's past, highlighting the political and the economic changes that have created the present. Today, we speak with Eric Rauschway. My name is Eric Rauschway. I'm professor of history at the University of California at Davis. The book is called The Moneymakers, and it has a longish but I think quite descriptive subtitle, How Roosevelt and Keynes Ended the Depression, Defeated Fascism, and Secured a Prosperous Peace. And uh, if you take the subtitle and the title together, I think it gives you most of the story, which is how Roosevelt pursued what I would call a Keynesian monetary policy from 1933 to 1945, which is the entirety of his presidency, and used it as a tool for all of those purposes, which is to say as a tool of recovery, as a tool to thwart fascist expansion, both in the United States and overseas, and also as a tool for forging alliances during the war and seeing that they endured afterward. This is a book about how Roosevelt gave us the dollar that we have today, and in turn how that dollar became the basis for the international monetary system and also, to a greater extent, the international economic system that we have now. How did you decide to write about Roosevelt, Keynes, and the Great Depression? 
Well, I, I think if we cast our minds back, uh, those of us who remember to the autumn of 2008, uh, there was a great financial crisis quite clearly underway, and this was in the lame duck days of the Bush presidency. And um, there was a question of how the administration would respond and then how the incoming Obama administration might respond and whether those responses should be informed in one way or another by the history of the Great Depression that we, we knew. There was a lot of discussion about what lessons we should take from the Depression in terms of fiscal stimulus and already, even then, a lot of uh, opposition emerging to it. That was when I got a phone call uh, in my office at UC Davis. And as I say in the book, I could date this fairly precisely because it was before in the name of austerity they took away our telephone. So, so I got a call sort of out of the blue from this fellow at a major Wall Street bank. And he said, well, you know, I want to talk to you about the response to the, uh, the Great Depression. And, and you know, I, I said, well, look, you know, we need to talk about both fiscal and monetary responses and that Roosevelt was unable for political reasons to pursue a Keynesian-style fiscal response. And this was something that both Roosevelt and Keynes knew through the 1930s and the historians of the Great Depression sort of still know. Um, but what's perhaps less known is that Roosevelt, uh, with Keynes's input, focused on monetary policy. And this was also very important and reasonably successful. And that's something that we should keep our eye on in the near future. That's what I said to him out loud. In my inner monologue, I was thinking, Boy, if anyone's asking me questions about the Great Depression, we're all in very serious trouble right now. You mentioned that you wanted to discuss both fiscal and monetary policy with this caller. What do you mean by those terms? The difference between monetary and fiscal policy is that fiscal policy is what a government does through its budget. So when we think about trying to recover from uh, an economic downturn or trying to even out uh, economic business cycles... Uh, well, fiscal policy is what the government does in terms of taxing and spending. So stereotypically, a Keynesian fiscal policy would be that in an economic downturn, when interest rates were quite low and the economy was still failing to sort of recover on its own, the government would borrow a tremendous amount of money and spend it on public works to employ people who otherwise would not be employed, and that would give the economy a boost. Right. This was something only to be done in times of dire crisis like that, the 1930s. Uh, and that, that broadly speaking, uh, the government might run a surplus in times of uh, boom and then only go into this kind of debt in times of crisis. And monetary policy has the same broad purpose as just to try to stabilize um, pretty much prices, but the economy more broadly, to try to prevent either runaway inflation or deflation. And this is done by making it harder or easier to get hold of money. And there are, there are lots of different levers uh, one can pull or spigots one can open to do that. Nowadays, this is largely done by the Federal Reserve Board in the United States so that they do open market uh, operations where they buy and sell traditionally treasury bonds, but lately and with quantitative easing other kinds of assets in order to inject uh, money into the economy. And e either way, you can make money more widely available uh, than it otherwise would be. Uh, you're just using different tools to do it. Uh, perhaps the most important thing to think about in terms of the Depression or today is if you do public works through the FISC, through the budget, right, then you're paying otherwise unemployed people to do work. That means you're putting money in the hands of people who really, really need it and who otherwise wouldn't have it. 
And that's one of the reasons that Keynes argued for it in the first place, is that it's surely then going to be spent right away on regular sort of everyday goods and thus provided needed spur to the economy. With monetary policy, when you change the availability mostly to banks of money, then you're trying to inject uh, money into the economy through bankers' lending policy. So it's coming in from a different angle and maybe not one at which uh, it would act as quickly as if it were fiscal policy. So for this book, you focused on monetary policy, which is the federal government's actions that lead to a change in how much money was circulating in the economy. Most of what we know about the Depression, though, focuses on fiscal policy, those public works projects that you mentioned, like the construction of the Lincoln Tunnel. Why has fiscal policy been more visible? The interesting thing about monetary policy as against fiscal policy in the United States, as indeed in other countries, is that because it comes through that special channel through banks, because it's usually operated by a central bank or people who substitute for central bankers, as in the United States, um, it's not something that's widely watched, right? Fiscal policy has to be approved by Congress or the parliament or whatever the legislature is. That's a big debate. Uh, it's one that's usually carried on in public. And the, the phenomenon of borrowing money that you don't have is something that people widely understood and are worried about. And so fiscal policy is often hard to pursue for those reasons. Monetary policy is much easier to do because it's a room full, small room full of experts who are making decisions. In the case of the Roosevelt administration, it's an even smaller room full because basically with coming into office, Roosevelt took uh, a large part of the control of monetary policy away from the Federal Reserve and kept it for much of the remainder of his presidency. So it was Roosevelt and his treasury that were pursuing monetary policy during the 30s and 40s. What kinds of economic phenomena were FDR and Keynes trying to change through monetary policy? What was happening economically that they believed controlling the money supply would fix? Okay. Well, uh, we have to cast our minds back to the economic conditions at the time that Roosevelt came into office. Uh, he's elected in November 1932, comes into the presidency in March 1933. This is at the tail end of about four years of prices falling steadily. And, you know, most of us in our lifetime have not seen deflation. Certainly we haven't seen deflation like that. So we have to uh, work, I think, to put ourselves in the minds of people who lived in a deflationary economy. The thing about deflation, we might think it sounds wonderful to have prices go down, but we have to remember, of course, that means the price for our labor or whatever it is that we produce is also going down. And it also means that for those of us who have borrowed money, whether for mortgages or for farm implements or for cars or for anything else, uh, deflation is really kind of awful uh, because the money we are paying back is worth more than the money we borrowed. It's harder to come by. So it's a real pinch on the debtor, which, to be honest, is most of us who aren't bankers. So deflation uh, is troublesome in those terms. It makes it harder to buy stuff. It makes it harder to get money. Um, it also creates a, a bigger problem when you realize that most decisions to buy aren't just made based on the spot price of something. You know, for a lot of us, when we think about what, what the price is of something and how that influences our decision whether to buy it or not, uh, we say, well, what does it cost now and will I buy it at that price? But another thing that we should think about, especially when we're buying anything that's not a need today, so anything that's not our rent or our groceries or anything like that, 
So a shirt, say a luxury item like that, a relative luxury item, we make our decision based not only on what it costs now, but what we expect it to cost in the near future. So if we expect prices to go down because they've been going down for a year, two years, three years, four years, as was the case in the Great Depression, if we expect prices to go down, we'll defer any purchase that we don't have to make because it'll be cheaper later. Um, we experience this, I think, in a small way, sort of in the run-up to Christmas. In modern times, you know, retailers stock up on goods. Uh, then they find they have too many. Uh, so they begin to lower prices. As it gets closer to Christmas, it's kind of a game of chicken between the retailer and the frugal buyer, because you know you have to make a decision by Christmas. But as you watch that price go down, you're going to wait and wait and wait and wait as long as you possibly can, if you can afford to do that, uh, so that you can get it at the lowest price. That's what the deflationary expectation does. And this is where Keynes is particularly important to this story. Keynes is one of the first to articulate clearly what the implications of this were for policy, which is to say deflation can actually bring an economy to a halt. As we expect prices to continue to go down, we don't buy things, we sit on our money instead of spending it. That means that people uh, aren't buying things, people aren't selling things, therefore. Uh, that means they aren't employing people to sell or make things. And a deflationary spiral can you know, drop in a modern economy in its tracks. Whereas a mild amount of inflation, of course, is therefore precisely what you want. If you expect the money that's in your pocket to be worth a little bit less next week, then you'll buy a shirt or a jacket or a pair of pants or whatever uh, non-necessary item you need because you know it'll be relatively more expensive later, and that's what you want. People's money to be burning a hole in their pocket. Okay, so it makes sense why FDR would want to stop rampant deflation. What kinds of solutions were people suggesting? Well, again, if you, if you think about where things were in late 1932, early 1933, prices have been falling so far that the economy was clearly broken and not on a, um, the basis of what productivity could do, right? There were unsold inventories in warehouses and, you know, crops rotting in fields. So people weren't buying things because of what deflation had done, which meant that in early in 33, the financial crisis was so severe that even major Wall Street bankers who were ordinary, quite, ordinarily quite uh, prudent with respect to monetary policy wanted Roosevelt to do something. And what they expected and wanted him to do was to suspend convertibility of the dollar to gold so that the economy could have some room to recover. They wanted it to be a temporary situation. Why would taking the U.S. off the gold standard help? Could you tell us first a little bit more about what the gold standard is and what it's intended to do? I mean, traditionally, in many modern economies, the currency is a precious metal, usually either silver or gold, um, because you can. it's not that common. It doesn't oxidize or it doesn't oxidize much uh, in the case of silver, and it doesn't oxidize in the case of gold, so it stays shiny. It's easy to make coins out of it. It's easy to determine, or relatively easy to determine if they've been monkeyed with. Um, so it, it's suitable for the purpose of making coins. And the fact that it's relatively rare, especially gold, means that you don't have to worry about there being an awful lot of it in circulation. So... If you declare that the pound sterling in the case of Britain or the dollar in the case of the United States is going to be worth so much uh, in terms of gold and you commit that you will convert uh, paper currency into gold on demand and you commit to overseas uh, 
persons and banks that you will conduct trade at a fixed uh, exchange rate of your currency to gold, then you're on a gold standard, right? And the, the purpose of that is to limit uh, the amount of money you have in circulation to a particular ratio to the amount of gold you have in your vaults, which will allegedly stabilize prices and will probably make it easier to engage in international commerce because people overseas won't undertake as much currency risk when thinking about what they'll uh, get in exchange for your goods. So the language behind that of a stable, trustworthy, honest, often strong dollar, you can see has a lot of cultural connotations as well. But largely, it's to facilitate international trade and to limit the ability of either bankers or policymakers to extend the credit to the uh, amount that can be issued based on gold and faults. So gold facilitates international trade, a gold standard facilitates international trade, and also constrains policymakers and prevents them from uh, issuing lots of currency. For many people, even today, gold retains an aura, or what you describe as a feeling of permanence, maybe even a magic. A few years ago, for example, we saw the price of gold rise amidst insecurity in other assets. Can you explain to our listeners why people supported going off the gold standard at this point in history? Here's the thing about gold. There's only so much of it in the world, as far as we know. There's only so much of it that's ever been dug up. Um, and, of course, it moves in terms of its price relative to other commodities based on how much of it is being dug up or used uh, at a given time. So one of the figures you get usually is that... Uh, See, all of the um, gold ever mined could be put into the hold of a single ocean liner quite easily, right? And 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 therefore, there's not there, there's a fixed quantity of it, and there's not, it's not very large. Meanwhile, over the course of modern history, of course, there have been more and more people being born, therefore more and more economic activity being engaged in, more and more stuff like livestock and wheat and, uh, you know, woolens and whatever being produced. So if you have a fixed quantity of gold and an ever-increasing quantity of stuff, you have a long-term deflationary effect uh, of gold because the price of one is going to be ever higher in the price of the increasing quantity of the other. So if gold is long-term deflationary, that's going to create a problem in times of economic crisis where policymakers can't issue more currency to try to relieve the effects of deflation because they're bound to gold. It's going to create long-term problems where farmers who are chronic debtors are going to be less and less able to sell their crops in terms of a satisfactory amount of gold-based currency. So by the time you get to early 1933 again, there's going to be a deep desire to get rid of the gold standard, at least temporarily, in order to relieve the effects of deflation. As I say, the important thing is, is at least temporarily. So Wall Street bankers, J.P. Morgan partners, folks are agitating to Roosevelt to go off the gold standard for the moment to try to revalue perhaps, but then they want him to go right back on. Why? Because they're worried about what inflation might do to their assets. I mean, the economy roughly divides when we're thinking about inflation and deflation into bankers and everybody else. Broadly speaking, you know, for everybody else, uh, inflation's okay, or as long as there's a small amount of it. For bankers, inflation is bad because it erodes their, the value of their principal assets, which is the debts that we owe them. 
If inflation is good for the debtor, because over time you can more easily get the money that you want to pay back, uh, inflation is bad for the creditor because the interest rate they've set means they're not getting paid back the same amount that they lent in terms of value. So bankers get awfully nervous about the prospect of long-term inflation or the prospect of policymakers or people who are responsible to everyone else uh, having control over the value of money because they worry about long-term inflation. So it seems like people would support going off the gold standard in the short term, but this seems very controversial as a permanent change. Okay, well, here again, we have to think about uh, what happens in the run-up to Roosevelt's inauguration. You know, there's an increase in panics in um, bank panics, and in, which shades into a currency panic. So people are taking their money out of banks because they don't trust banks to be there tomorrow. This is an era, of course, before there's a federal deposit insurance corporation, so that people just take their money out of the bank when they're worried about uh, bank failures, which, of course, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. People taking their money out of bank makes it more likely that banks are going to fail. But not only are they taking their money out of the bank, but they're also then taking their currency to the Federal Reserve and demanding gold in exchange for their paper money. So there's a simultaneous run on regular commercial banks and also run on the U.S. gold supply. That extends to uh, overseas folks, you know, seeking to exchange dollars for gold, such that by the time Roosevelt is inaugurated, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which is when the gains engages most in international finance, uh, is at or below the statutory minimum of gold it's supposed to hold, which is forty cents on the dollar or something like that. So. When Roosevelt comes into office, he's got the bank crisis and the currency crisis to take care of. The banks of the country are by and large already shut uh, through a patchwork of proclamations and decisions that have been made. He wants to make that uniform. He's inaugurated on March 4th, which is a Saturday. That makes March 5th a Sunday. So they don't actually take action on the Sunday out of respect for the Lord. But early on the morning of March 6th, uh, he issues his uh, bank holiday proclamation, which it, it ceases all commerce in terms of exchanging uh, gold for dollars. This actually followed by a series of executive orders to make sure all the various points in the system at which gold can flow out are shut down. And now gold doesn't move. The goal here, of course, is to stop the hemorrhage. Right? That's where you've reached in terms of our emergency room metaphor. What you want is for people to say, okay, now we trust the president. We trust the banks. We'll bring back our gold. We'll bring back our deposits. And indeed, that's what happens. That's uh, not necessarily what people would have expected, but that, that's what happens. Um, the depositors vote with their feet. They bring their uh, money back into the system. Banks are allowed to reopen beginning after a very few days. Uh, and But gold doesn't move again. So at this point, Bankers are quite grateful to Roosevelt for having saved the system. What Roosevelt hasn't done publicly is state that this is the first move away permanently from the gold standard, but he has stated that privately. Why, why does he do that privately but not publicly? It's because he's trying to stop a panic, right? He says, well, now I'm going to make sure that, you know, I have permanent control of the dollar and none of you know what the dollar will be worth tomorrow. He's worried that will cause a panic, right? But he's worried if he moves, he thinks that if he moves step by step and earns Americans' trust that he'll be able to get where he wants to go, which is to a Keynesian-style managed currency. Of course today, we're still off the gold standard, but we hear constantly how awful inflation is. 
how we should avoid rising inflation at all costs. Why were people more willing to risk inflation during the 1930s? Okay, so partly it's just the severity of the Great Depression that makes people not so worried about inflation, right, in 1933. Partly it's um, the composition of the economy, right? I mean, if you're looking at an economy that is still largely uh, people who depend on agriculture, who are commodity producers, those are people who are very sensitive, you know, to price movements, because the whole bit, the whole name of the game is about getting the crop to market at a time when you know you're going to get the best price for it, right? So if and the Democratic Party in particular depends on those votes. So if you think about that kind of economy and that kind of political party, they're going to be much keener on inflation than 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 any modern uh, similarly sized demographic would be, right? Okay, so FDR has taken us off the gold standard. What does money management look like without it? On the cover of my book, you will see both Franklin Roosevelt and John Maynard Keynes, and you will find them in the subtitle. And sometimes this this has already irked people, because if there's one thing that we sort of all collectively know about Roosevelt's administration is that he never pursued an adequately Keynesian policy over the course of the 1930s. Uh, that, that is to say, never provided sufficient fiscal stimulus to counteract the Great Depression. But that business of fiscal Keynesianism is really only one small part of Keynes's writings, Keynes's thought, Keynes's uh, policy influence. He devoted a much larger amount of his time and efforts to monetary policy. And again, I want to get us to think in terms of Roosevelt's monetary policy and Keynes's influence on it. Keynes first began to write about money with his first book, which was about the Indian currency in 1913. He spent some time at Versailles at the peace negotiations after World War I trying to replace gold as an international currency with a currency that would help relieve the debt and reparations situation after the war. Uh, and he wrote maybe most influentially the tract on monetary reform in 1923, where he pointed out a lot of what I've already sort of described to you in terms of monetary policy and the importance of expectations. And he laid out the reasons that while inflation was bad, on balance, it was more desirable than deflation because deflation could bring an economy to a halt, whereas inflation would rob only certain sectors of society. And so on balance, it was obviously better to have a bit of inflation than to have deflation. And he laid out the ways in which policymakers should seek to manage their currency to prevent deflation and ideally to maintain some kind of price stability and keep people's expectations from running away with the economy. So he laid that in 1923. By 1930, 31, he had had a much larger work, uh, the Treatise on uh, Money, which uh, laid out in, in a lot more detail the ways in which a post-gold standard economy might work. And throughout, he referred to gold as a barbarous relic, right? something that was uh, inimical to prosperity and economic development and something that should be supplanted as the basis for currencies. And by the Treatise on Money in the middle of the uh, Depression, he had been pointing out the ways in which you could have an international fund with a supranational bank money that could replace gold and provide the opportunity for all countries to manage the values of their currencies to thwart inflation or deflation in their own countries. So this is well laid out, relatively well known by the time Roosevelt came into office, and it was something with which many of his uh, advisors, closest advisors, were already familiar so FDR and Keynes have a plan that is not just impacting the United States. 
It has tremendous international implications as well. There's a kind of understanding of Roosevelt's money policy in 1933 that it is nationalistic, that it is isolationist, that it is beggar thy neighbor, or ruder terms for one's neighbor, and that the basic idea is that Roosevelt wants to look after the United States, that he's no better in this respect than many other uh, countries in this time that want to use monetary policy as a tool for their own economies and not worry about the global economy. This is both not right and uh, not useful, I think, in a way of understanding what Roosevelt was about and therefore not helpful in understanding where Roosevelt ends up. If you look at what Roosevelt wanted out of taking the dollar off gold and turning it into a currency that the United States government could manage, he had in mind the idea that all the countries of the world would similarly decide to do this. Indeed, most of them had gone off gold at the, by that time. And that there would be an international conference at which they could agree to manage uh, their currencies together in terms of a notional international currencies that would not be gold, that would replace gold as the international standard of value. This is something that Roosevelt says in 1933. This is something that Keynes supports him for in 1933. And this is, of course, what Bretton Woods will end up being in 1944, is a world of managed currencies fixed to a new international currency that isn't gold, so as to give each country the leeway to uh, pursue successful domestic economic policy while still being involved in an international monetary system. But it's going to take a long time to get there. In 1933, the reason it doesn't work out is that France is still on gold, on the gold standard, and the British... Uh, is, hope to go back on the gold standard fairly soon, and they don't want to make permanent arrangements for a world without a gold standard. It's really only the advance of fascism that makes that uh, arrangement possible, beginning in the middle 1930s, when the troubles that the French run into by remaining on gold become too much for uh, French governments to withstand. Uh, they have a number of governments fall, they have a number of crises, and eventually they manage to take the franc off of gold and to reach an agreement with Britain and the United States that they together will manage their three currencies to try to keep them stable, to improve economic activity, and to stand off the economic depredations of the uh, Germans. And so that's the beginning, really, of this idea that money can be part of an alliance against fascism. Monetary policy sounds really central to the politics leading into World War II. And the thing is, you know, you know through the 30s that the Congress has a series of neutrality acts that sort of bind uh, the American government's hands, particularly in terms of lending money to uh, anyone who might be in the path of the fascist advance. But when the uh, Roosevelt administration took the dollar off gold and nominally increased uh, the um, value of gold relative to the dollar created a paper profit for the administration because of all the gold they held in their vaults. So the government has all this gold in their vaults. They say, well, now the dollar is actually worth quite a bit less in terms of gold, which means the gold that we have is worth quite a bit more. That paper profit goes into the ledgers as an exchange stabilization fund, which is under the almost exclusive control of the Secretary of the Treasury. Now, you wouldn't want to say that they then lent money to other countries for the purposes of fighting fascism because Congress has expressly forbidden that with the Neutrality Act. They did, however, set up stabilization counts with France, with 
China, countries that were in the way of fascist advances to try to shore them up. Uh, a lot of economists would point out that this is basically a loan, but they weren't on paper called loans, in part because of the atmosphere around neutrality. So again, monetary policy gave the administration freedom to do things that fiscal policy uh, would not. What were Keynes' long-term plans for international monetary policy? Remember, the starting point for the international monetary system post-war is for it to not be based on gold, because gold was uh, an arbitrary limit, it was a constraint, it was therefore deflationary, and moreover, by the time you get into the early 1940s, the United States has almost all the gold in the world that's worth speaking of. So there would have to be some kind of gold redistribution plan if they wanted to go on a world gold standard, and that wasn't likely to happen. So something other than gold, uh, what would that be? Well, Keynes reasoned that the international monetary system where you bring francs, you bring sterling, you bring these currencies to the table, they have to be changed into something and then to be changed into dollars in order to understand uh, what each currency was worth in terms of the others and in order to keep them relatively stable. What would that something be? Well, let's create a notional coin, a notional unit of account Ultimately, he came up with the idea of bancor. That's sort of like a, you know, means like bank gold, roughly speaking, in French. Um, but it's, it's, it's in place of actual gold. And the volume of bancor available would wax and wane depending on the activity in the world's economy. So the more trade there was, the more bancor there would be. The more need there was for uh, a bit of bancor to uh, balance out international uh, exchanges, the more there would be created. This was the idea behind Bancor. There would be an automatic overdraft facility. Countries that needed a bit of Bancor to offset uh, imbalances in their international trade would get it, and of course then they would have to pay it back with interest into the pot. Um, and so Keynes's idea, therefore, is that there would never again be the kind of problem you'd come into in 1933, where there just wasn't enough gold to go around uh, to finance the levels of uh, economic activity that existed. Which sounds maybe fantastic on paper, certainly did to Keynes and to many of his uh, uh, allies. It bothered particularly American officials because there was this imaginary currency that was being created out of nowhere as if by magic, and it didn't seem as reliable as gold. And here we get back to one of those perennial problems in the discussion of money. People have strong feelings about money, they feel it should be based on something quite tangible, if possible. And uh, the American officials, who of course were in a better position vis-a-vis -vis gold than anybody else, didn't like the idea of Bancor. They didn't want to go back on gold either, and they were under strict instructions from Roosevelt not to do that. So what they came up with was a contributory fund. So instead of having this kind of elastic pot of imaginary money in the uh, center of the world, which would wax and wane with the global economy, they had a kind of poker pot that every country would chip into and would be able to draw on it, need in proportion to the amount that they'd chipped in, but that would be it. Right? So it wouldn't be kind of infinite as long as the world economy grew. It would be capped at the amount that had been contributed. And it would be a bit more punitive to borrowers than Keynes had envisioned it being. Um, 
the the UNITAS was you asked me about the UNITAS. The UNITAS was a U.S. counterproposal that was very short lived uh, to replace this elastic unit to the Bancor, which this fixed unit uh, that wasn't basically Keynes's idea uh, because Keynes was viewed with suspicion amongst a lot of American circles. Ultimately, you don't end up with either of those things. What you end up with is the United States dollar. Right? The United States dollar, which is still in 1944, notionally fixed to the same value that Roosevelt fixed that out in 1934, although you still can't get gold for it uh, unless you're a central bank. And that provides a certain amount of stability and liability to the system. The U.S. dollar becomes uh, the international unit of account that is as good as gold instead of gold. So ultimately, we don't end up with any of these optimistic plans for international monetary cooperation. We inscribe instead the U.S. dollar as the international unit of exchange. Can you say a little more about why Keynes and FDR supported these visions for monetary policy? What was their underlying philosophy? Uh, Well, I suppose this is the point on which I am myself most a Keynesian. Keynes is often parodied as believing that, well, basically life should be like Bloomsbury, only for more people, Uh, that we should all have good friendships, you know, good food, good wine, good art, that the highest good is love, that the second highest good is aesthetic experience, And uh, that's what we should all have. That's what we should all strive for. That society should be organized to arrange those things for the highest number, largest number of people. And Franklin Roosevelt, I think, on that fundamental level, was also fairly Keynesian, that he appreciated a good cocktail, a good poker game, uh, was very keen on friendship as a moral value. And these are the things that made life good. And so if you work from what makes life good to what kind of economy you should have, then prosperity is very important. It's very important that we should all have at least enough to purchase something resembling the good life and that it should be fairly evenly distributed so that people aren't terribly envious of those who are having the good life, especially if they themselves are not. It's both a philosophical point and it seems to be borne out in historical fact that if you have an economic crisis and crushing deflation, uh, you create sufficient resentment such that people lose faith in a society that isn't providing the good life for a sufficient uh, proportion of its members. You have fascism. As one of Roosevelt's advisors says in 1933, you know, you have a choice right now between a rise in prices and a rise in dictators. You can see it happening in Europe and you might see it happen here. So a moderate amount of inflation, a controlled amount of inflation, therefore becomes something that's politically desirable because it would prevent fascism because it's morally desirable because it leads to a better life for most of us. When you think about uh, the language surrounding the gold standard, how it's all about strength and discipline and constraint, you can see that at least implicitly it's the opposite philosophical point. It's that we should suffer, you know, instead of having a bit of inflation. Um, and obviously there are people whose morals center on the idea that really we deserve to suffer, but, um, I, I tend not to take that view and neither of course did Roosevelt or Keynes. And that point about austerity and suffering more broadly, that leads me into kind of the last question that I have, which is, you know, there are some obvious correlations between the history that you're discussing here and our present. And we've talked a little bit about 2008 and how it's similar or different, but I'm just, I'm just curious what you would say to people. What are the primary lessons that you think people listening to this you know, should learn from FDR 
and canes. And I'm struck, I'm struck, you know, specifically by thinking about, um, you know, at the beginning of the crisis, it looked like such a moment where, you know, a return to Keynesianism might be possible. But then when you watch the Democratic debate this week, even Bernie Sanders is bragging about balancing the budget in Vermont. So um, it's, you know, I'm, I'm interested to, in, in your thoughts on that. I, I do think there there might have been a moment late in 2008, early in 2009, but it was fairly fleeting when we could have had a serious discussion about the desirability of a Keynesian approach to managing the economy. I think we missed it because the voices that were loudest then and I think remain loudest now are those who are most sympathetic to the banker view of the economy. I mean, as I said at the outset, uh, you know, the people who are most worried about inflation are bankers who are going to see their assets eroded by inflation. The rest of us, you know, aren't actually going to suffer, especially if we happen to be borrowers uh, terribly much. So, um, I think that the closeness of the Obama administration to a lot of Wall Street types was probably not the best service we could have had. The thing that's remarkable about the early Roosevelt administration and indeed throughout is that Roosevelt was very skeptical of Wall Street bankers and disinclined to listen to them. If you, again, if you look at uh, you know the inaugural address, remember the idea of kicking the money changers out of the temple. Um, which was be then rededicated to democracy. That's something that Roosevelt actually stuck to. So uh, what would be the lessons we could learn? More concretely, perhaps we should listen less to bankers about how to manage the economy for the rest of us, since most of us, again, are not in the position of being bankers. And, and, and they're, they're a minority, an important minority, but not they aren't the, the majority. Uh, you know, more broadly, that we should not be quite so worried about inflation as as perhaps we have been, and indeed as the Federal Reserve seems to be as of December, um, that you know, this, this sort of continual worry about inflation while the economy is in the doldrums is very much like, you know, worrying about fire breaking out on the sinking Titanic, right? That's, that's not the primary problem. It might be a bad thing, but not something we have to worry about right now. So I would say that placing employment a bit higher as a priority and, and worrying a bit less about eroding bankers' portfolios. You know, the recession is over, right? But the economy is still not quite recovered, which is um, why I think the depression remains a useful example. I mean, in, in our own time, there's been a long-term sort of uh, malaise has been tainted by Carter. So let's say a great unpleasantness, right, that has, has persisted since 2008 with, uh, you know, widening inequality, recovery at sort of the top end of the scale, not so much recovery at the lower end of the scale, dragging especially employment, even though the Fed is raising rates. It looks like actually we're in a phase of, if not deflation, then certainly uh, monetary stability. And, and, and it's not at all clear that things are going well, even though the recession is over. In fact, uh, the economic historian Kevin O'Rourke just had a paper which uh, charts the course of our recovery since 2008 against the course of the recovery after 1929. And we are now lagging the uh, recovery of the Great Depression era in terms of getting back to output. So um, uh, I, I, whatever we have going on, it might not be as severe as a depression, but it certainly isn't anything like so easy to put one's finger on as a recession. If you liked our show, make sure to check us out at whomakesensepodcast.com. 
Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash who makes sense and follow us on Twitter at who makes sense. And let us know if there are topics that you want to know more about. You can learn more about Eric's work at our website, whomakesensepodcast.com. Who Makes Sense is supported by the Yale Public Humanities Program and the University of Southern California's Department of American Studies and Ethnicity. Join us next month for more Histories of Capitalism. Capitalism.